0: The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Today we're continuing our series, You're Invited. Over the past several weeks, what we've done is we've been looking at the mission that God has given us as Christians. To go and make disciples of all nations and, and asking ourselves, now, how do we accomplish that in our midst? To, to look at the, the mission to extend the love and care of Jesus to all people and then asking, all right, now what does it look like for us to accomplish that mission? How are we going to go about the mission that God has given us in this place? And so to talk about that, we've used three different words, belong, believe, and become. And so what you've seen as we've talked about each of these words is we, we've had them, each, each one is connected and builds on the other words. ...that none of these are words you just cross off a list and move on from... But, ...but the greater you have one, the greater you have the others. That as you grow in your, in your belonging... Your, ...your relationship to other Christians... Your, ...the community, the family that you experience when, when you are a part of a church... ...as you grow in those relationships... ...so you also then will grow in your relationship with God... ...as, as, you, as, as you are surrounded by people who love Jesus and, and point you to Jesus. And so then as you continue to grow in your belief... ...as you study the scriptures... ...as you hear and receive from the promises of God... ...then what that will also do is impact the way you live your life. That as you grow in your relationship with God... ...you will become more and more like Jesus... ...as you then go out and love the people around you. And so what we've done with each of these words... ...is we've, t- we've taken each of them twice... And so we began by talking about it individually, what we want to experience, each of us individually as Christians, that we want to experience being a part of the family of God, that we want to experience a a growth in our own, in in what we believe, in in the promises of Jesus and how we receive those, and we want to see each and every one of us individually becoming more and more like Christ. And then as we've cycled back around that, what we thought is, is as we become more and more like Christ, then what that will lead us to do is to invite other people and help other people experience those same kind of things. And so we've thought about, all right, what does it look like now for us to invite other people into this church family? What does it look like for us to invite other people and listen to other people so that they might have the opportunity to hear and to grow in their own belief? What does it look like for us then to invite other people to become more and more like Jesus, to give them opportunities to love and serve their neighbor? And so today what I want to do is I want to take these same words, but I want to take a step back now from them. And so I want to get an overview of seeing how they all connect and work together, building upon one another when we think about our life as followers of Jesus. Jesus. How how our growing relationship with one another leads to a growing relationship with Jesus, which leads to us becoming more and more like Jesus in our daily life. And so to do that, I want to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 5. If you could turn in your Bibles to Luke, chapter 5, if you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,598. Now as we turn to Luke, I think there's something important to note as we talk about this... As Luke Luke records for us the story that we're going to read, what we are not going to find from Luke is him recording a one-size-fits-all strategy for how to accomplish the mission of God in a church. In fact, the Bible doesn't give us such a strategy. The closest thing we could get to a strategy in in the Bible for accomplishing the mission is, is the Bible tells us to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. And so as we read this, what we're not going to find is is Luke prescribing that that this is a way for all churches to work and and for them to structure a strategy and order of how things connect to one another. But what Luke is doing is he's pointing us to the work of Jesus. To the work of Jesus, to the promise of Jesus. And so so as we read this this story, this account that Luke gives to us about Jesus, what I want us to do is see how Jesus chooses to work. See the relationships that, that Luke ...that Luke records Jesus working in, in the response of the people who experience the work of Jesus. And as we read about those, what we are then going to do is make an application into our own context... ...of what it looks like when we want people to experience the same promises from Jesus. What we want people to experience as they receive from Jesus the things that only Jesus can give to them... ...as they respond to the the works of Jesus in their life. And so I'm going to begin in Luke chapter 5, verse 17... "...one day, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. The power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came, carrying a paralytic on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus." When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you. Get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were, ful- they were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Now notice how this event takes place. A paralyzed man is brought to Jesus. Now this paralyzed man, in order to get to Jesus, he he can't just decide one day that he's going to go see Jesus. No amount of desire or willpower will get the paralyzed man to Jesus that day. Now he might want to see Jesus, he might be determined to Jesus, and he might try really hard to get up off his mat and get to Jesus. But no matter how hard he tries, he cannot get to Jesus without the help of those four men. See, it's those four men who end up bringing him to Jesus. And then even when they get to Jesus, they realize that, that, that it's too crowded. They can't just go in the front door. And so they, they come up with a plan. And so they carry that man onto the roof of the house and began digging a hole into the roof. And you've got to imagine like Jesus teaching there and dirt just dropping down and then a body being lowered right in front of Jesus. And so this man ends up lowered in front of Jesus, and he was powerless to get to Jesus. Yet it's then, in that moment, that Jesus gives to him what only Jesus can give to him. See, the paralytic is healed in that moment because because somebody carried him to Jesus. See, the only reason that the paralytic gets healed is not because he wanted to go see Jesus, but because, because he had friends who carried him to Jesus. Without those four men who carried him, he would never have been in that room with Jesus on that day. The paralytic is only healed because somebody carries him to Jesus. It's not what he did. It's not his plan. No, it's a group of men brought him to Jesus, the one who could do what he couldn't do for himself. So you and I, when we think of our own relationship with God, it's the same way. That you and I are paralyzed in our relationship with God. That you and I are lying on a mat, unable to get to Jesus on our own. That we're paralyzed by our own sin. And so we can't fix the sin condition. We can't can't atone for our own sins. We can't get to Jesus. No matter how hard we might want to work, we can't get to Jesus on our own. In fact, powerless is how the scriptures even describe us in our sin. Romans chapter 5 says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... You, you could even say, while we were still paralyzed, Christ died for the ungodly. So you and I, because of our own sin, we are paralyzed, lying on the mat. Unable to get to Jesus. But it's, it, but it's only then when somebody brought us to Jesus that he does for us what only he can do while we are still lying on the mat, while we are still in our own sin. See, many of you are here today... Because somebody carried you to Jesus. See, many of you are here today because at some point, somebody carried you to Jesus. Perhaps when you were, when you were young... That as a young child you were powerless to make a decision on your your own. You You were unable to decide that you wanted to be a follower of Jesus. But you had parents who in that moment, while you were still powerless, that they carried you to the waters of baptism. Because in that moment they brought you to Jesus where Jesus could give to you what they couldn't give to you. Maybe for some of you, while you you were still a small child, you had parents who carried you to the scriptures as they opened up the Bible in your home to give to you what they couldn't give to you, but what God, through his word, could give to you. They carried you to Jesus. Because even while you were powerless in your sin, while you were powerless as a small child, they brought you to Jesus because there are certain things that only Jesus can give to you. See, for some of you, you experience a powerlessness because of something that happened in your life. That maybe for some of you, you, you experienced a moment, a season. Maybe you were going through a divorce, or you experienced the death of a loved one, or you experienced a diagnosis. And in that moment, you came face to face with your own powerlessness. That you looked at your situation, you looked at what you, what you were experiencing, and you could not fix it. That you, that you couldn't get out of that situation, you couldn't solve the problem. But ma- for many of you, it's, it was in those moments that you found that you had friends, that you had family members who couldn't fix the problem, but they carried you to the one who could. That it, while you were powerless, you had friends who lifted you up while you were on the mat, and they brought you to Jesus. Because they didn't know how to help, but they knew Jesus could. So some of you, maybe, maybe you're in here and, and you, you've experienced seasons of doubts and skepticism. That you, were, that you weren't really sure, like, can I really buy this whole Jesus thing? Like, can I really believe that, that, that this is what God is like? And for some of you, the, the reason you kept coming around was not because you got answers to that question, but because people around you carried you while you, while, the, while you didn't have the answers, and they brought you to the one who had the answers. The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Some of you have had moments where you came face to face with the damage your own sin has caused. The havoc it's wreaked on your family, the, the, the damage it's caused to your own soul as you looked at the ways that you have not lived up to what God has called you to and, and the hurt that it's caused. And many of you in those moments, you've been surrounded by people who knew the only way to deal with your sin was to carry you to Jesus. Jesus. Because it's by bringing you to Jesus that you would hear Jesus speak to you the same words that he spoke to that paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven. In fact, many of you are here this morning because somebody carried you to Jesus. And they carried you to Jesus just so you could hear those words today. That your sins are forgiven. See, for the paralyzed man, he is there Because these men carried him to Jesus. Because they brought him to Jesus. In that day, he may not have been healed if it weren't for those men. See, as a church, we have a deep conviction that belonging is central to our life as we follow Jesus. Because it's in the context of belonging that we will find a community that will carry us to Jesus. Right now, notice how the way that we talk about belonging. The belonging is not simply for the sake of the community. It's for the sake of a community that will bring us to Jesus. It's not just a social club that exists purely for the friendships, but it's for the relationships that are going to bring you to Jesus because only Jesus can give you what you need. And so as we talk about what it means to belong, what we see is that, that Jesus works. And Jesus heals this man because he was carried to Jesus. Herb Kelleher was, a, was the CEO of Southwest Airlines, and I recently heard an interview that he did as he described his strategy for, for working at Southwest Airlines and, and, their, and their business and their, their mission. And he described it in an interesting way as he described what they were trying to accomplish and what they tried to encourage their employees. He said, he said, I wanted my organization, I wanted them to think small to grow big. Which I think is an interesting strategy when it comes to the way that they ran their business. They understood that actually thinking smaller, more individual, would actually promote the growth of their company. When you and I think about belonging, that that is the kind of relationships that we're we're thinking in terms of. That as we think small, there is significant growth. And not just in terms of multiplication, but in terms of depth. Because the more and more you, you grow in the depth of, of your, your belonging, of your relationships, what will happen is it also grows in the depth and knowledge and love for the Scriptures as you, ha- as you have people who are pouring into you and speaking to you the promises of God. Right, 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 think, think about it this way. Like If I say to you, your sins are forgiven, right? you hear me say those words... Right? And the the Holy Spirit works through those words. It's the promise of the gospel that God is working as you hear those words. But the way you hear it when I speak it to you in a room this size is different when you gather in different types of groups. And so you could be a mom gathering together with other moms on a Tuesday morning while your kids are in preschool. And so as you gather at something like our mom's cafe, the way you'll hear those same words will be different in that environment. Now it's the same God, same truth, same promise... But when you're around all these other moms who know your struggles, who know what you're going through, who know you by name, you'll hear those words differently. As you go on, this is why we'll take our teenagers on a retreat. Why? Because as we gather them together, it's the same words they'll hear week in and week out everywhere else. But, But as they gather together in this different group, in this different environment, they'll hear those same words differently. Why? Because the context that they're in shapes the way that they think and hear those words. Which is why also then, that why we take every age and every every stage of life and we also continue to break them down into smaller groups. Because when you're in a group of 12 people who are meeting and doing life together, you really know those people, right? Because you you, you can kind of know people in a room like this, and you can kind of know people when you're in a room of 50, 60 people, but when you're in a group of 12 you really begin to know each other, right? You know their families, you know struggles, you know questions, Right, you might, you might, the other kind of people you're going to be texting and calling throughout the week, right, you know those people. And so then when somebody says the same words that you've heard everywhere else in that environment, you hear them differently. Why? Because now those people who then once again spoke about the forgiveness and love of Jesus, they know your junk. Right, they know the struggle, they know the mess, they know the doubts, they know the questions. Which again is still different than when you sit across the table one-on-one with somebody. Who now they know your struggles where they've called you out on sin. They've heard you even confess your sin. And then they look you directly in the eye and say your sins are forgiven. Now it's not that the truth changed or that the way God worked changed but you hear it differently. Right? It's the reason why parents, why you can say something over and over again and then your kids go somewhere else and hear somebody say the same thing and now they suddenly hear it differently. Right? Because, because the level of belonging that we experience impacts the way that we hear the message. And so throughout the scriptures, we see this happen in all different ways. We see the apostles preaching and teaching in groups of a thousand. And, a thou- and people are, a thousands of people are being baptized and added to their number daily. You'll see that this, the groups of disciples that are 72 people. And then within that group of 72, you'll see disciples broken down into... There's a group of 12 disciples who, who spend all their time with Jesus, hearing the teachings of Jesus, walking with Jesus, witnessing all the interactions that Jesus has. And then even within that 12, you have three who get to he- hear and witness certain things that the other 12 didn't. One of which is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Even within those, there is different levels of belonging and relationships. And so when you and I think about our relationships that we have, perhaps as we get smaller and smaller, as we belong more and more, those relationships then carry us to Jesus as we hear more and more of the promises of the grace and love of God. Now the paralytic, when he's brought to Jesus, we see two things happening when, when he's brought to Jesus. We've, we see the first thing that happens is interesting because the first thing Jesus does is he forgives his sins. The, the, the primary thing happening here is that Jesus is actually offering to him the, the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus sees their faith and he, sa- and he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Which we see the religious people freak out in that moment because they know that the only person who can forgive sins is God. They know that that there's only one person who has that kind of authority. And so so when Jesus says that, he's making a bold claim. And so because of that, then Jesus says, well, I'm going to heal him just to prove to you that I also have that authority, that I can be the one who forgives sins. And so because of that, the paralytic is healed and forgiven. Now, what's also surprising, though, is is how this interaction comes about. So you see, notice that when these four men brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, the text tells us Jesus saw their faith. Right, have you ever thought about who is the they that Luke's referring to? Jesus saw the four men's faith and healed The paralyzed man. Jesus saw the friend's faith and in response offered the paralytic man what he needed the most. See, in a very real way, the relationships that that paralytic had directly impacted the grace he received. God's strategy for reaching those who are far from God is connected to your faith. See, there is an important connection between what Jesus gives to you and how he uses people in your life to give you those gifts. God chooses to use pastors and friends and spouses and parents and small group leaders, teachers and coaches, all to work through them to give you the things that you need the most. And so what we see in the paralytic is as, as he is in the context of this community, they bring him to Jesus so Jesus can forgive him and heal him. Now, when we think in terms of, of how we are accomplishing the mission of Jesus, if, if our belonging then leads to people bringing us to Jesus, an qu- important question for us to then ask, is: so, all right, so what, what is it that we want people to believe? Right, if, if our belonging is not simply for the sake of having friends, but ultimately so people can be brought to Jesus, what is the message we want people to believe? And so I think that there you can use three words to summarize everything that we want people to believe. Grace, truth, love. Now, now let, me, let me provide some working definitions for us because you could, we could nuance those words to death. And so I want to give, give a working definition to get us on the same page um, and, and why I believe these all encompass what, what it is we are trying to point people to when we talk about what we believe. Now, the, now the first thing is grace is central. Right? When we talk about grace, it is, it is the favor of God that we don't merit, that we don't earn. It is God's love, his mercy, his grace, his gift to us that we can't do anything to receive. And so as we talk about grace, we're talking about the hope we have in Jesus alone. It's, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus offered on our behalf. And so what we, what we see in this account with the paralytic is that this is the primary thing. See, the primary problem for the paralytic man is not his physical condition, it's his spiritual condition. The primary problem for you today is, is not any of the physical things going on in your life. It's the spiritual things. Grace is the primary message. And so the, way we, the only way to, to talk about grace is to be honest about the problem. And so we have to be honest about sin. We have to be honest about our guilt. We have to be honest about the shame. Because it's only in honesty about those things that we can marvel at the grace of God. And so what we see as the scriptures teach us, as they point us, is Jesus, as he opens up the Old Testament, what he does is he says, all of this points to me. What we see the Apostle Paul saying is, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because grace is the primary message that as you are revealed your own sin, it's not for the sake of beating you up, it's for the sake of pointing you to Jesus. Now, if grace is the primary message, truth is how we know about that message. Truth is the source of the message. See, the only reason we know grace is the primary message is because the Bible teaches us so. The Bible is truth. And so as we talk about the source of our truth, the source of our faith, uh, what, what guides us as we live, what guides us in what we believe, what we teach, what we confess, is ultimately the scriptures. That these aren't our own ideas. These aren't, this isn't us acting on a, on a whim. No, God has spoken to us clearly through his word. That God's word is inspired and inerrant. And God has chosen to, to give us that word through, through people who wrote, wrote those words in particular times and places. And he gave it to us in such a way that it is God's perfect word to us. This is why we teach young kids the Bible is true, true, true. Right? Because we want everybody to know that the Bible is the source of our truth. That at every age and stage of life, in whatever size group you gather in, that you would be hearing that God has spoken to you. And if you want to know what God wants to say to you, you can open up the book and you can read his very words to you. And as we read those words, what we then find is that it not only tells us what to believe, but it tells us how to live. James 2 will challenge us when it says, faith without works is dead. And it challenges us because it calls every one of us to account. Then, all right, if I really believe this, if I really confess this, that then, why don't I not always love my neighbor the way that I'm supposed to? See, if grace is central, the Bible is truth. Love is how God created us to live—to love and serve our neighbor. This is why the Bible teaches us over and over again: love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Honor your father and mother. To care for your children. Then whatever work you do, do it all for the glory of God. To defend the cause of the fatherless and the widows, the orphans, the, the vulnerable. That God has created us to love and serve the people around us. See, even if you use something like the Ten Commandments, what you'll find is all of these at play. Grace, truth, and love. Right? God, God in his love for us gives to us the, the commandments. And so we, if we hold up the commandments as a mirror, what we'll find is very quickly we will find that we don't do what God wants us to do. And immediately in that moment when we are broken down, we have nowhere to turn but to Grace. Because as we are confronted with our own sin, what we'll find, that as God reveals us our sin, he is going to point us to the the message of grace, that he, by his death and resurrection, he forgives every one of your sins, no matter how bad or how far you fell. And the only reason we use something like the Ten Commandments is because we actually believe that God has spoken his truth, that God has revealed his will to us. That God has actually said to us, here is the best possible way to live. And because of that, this best possible way to live just happens to be a, a life that loves the people around us, that, that loves God and loves our neighbor. And so you want to know what that looks like? Well, God tells us. Right, you want to love your neighbor? Well, don't gossip. Instead, defend your neighbor, speak well of your neighbor. Right, you you want to love your neighbor? Well, well, don't take from your neighbor, but give to your neighbor. And so we see all of these grace and truth and love. Working together. And then that love leads us then how, how we live in the world around us. Now when we think about that cycle, belong, believe, and become. In the story of the paralytic, I believe that that become can be the most difficult to see in that. Now, now the reason that I think it's difficult is not because I don't think it's actually taking place. I, I would suggest it is primarily because of the way we think about words like praise and worship. See, those are words that for many of us, they have become Sunday morning words, right? Praise is what happens when we're singing. Praise Worship is is a time that we're gathered together. But when the scripture describes these words, it's primarily about a response. It's not about singing, although it can be. It's about an all-of-life response to the work of God. And so what we see in the story of the paralytic, notice what happens after the man is forgiven and healed. He stands up, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. See, what, see what the scriptures are teaching us is not simply that he, he sang a song. Right? It's, not, it's not saying, all right, all right he was healed, so, so he got out the acoustic guitar and started singing. No, no what, it, what, he, what it's saying is that because of what God did, he responded. Which, which may involve singing, which may involve words, but worship is an all-of-life response to all of what God has done. See, when we receive God's grace, we become worshipers in all of life. That in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, that all of those become an opportunity to respond to the love of Jesus. And so when you and I become more and more like Jesus, our whole lives become an act of worship. Our parenting, our working, our relationship with our spouse, or our relationships with students, or teachers, all of those relationships then become opportunities for worship. To respond because God loves, because God forgives, because God heals. And to respond to that in all of our relationships. But this is why Romans 12 says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Right? Paul is giving a definition for worship that involves all of life. The way that you offer your bodies, the way that you sacrifice yourself for other people is an act of worship. Holy and pleasing God. The way you leverage your life for the sake of someone else is an act of worship. Whether you volunteer with childcare, whether you go, like many of our leaders are on a retreat with teenagers this weekend, whether you serve on a mission field, or whether you're raising your children or just doing your daily work, all of those become opportunities for you to become a worshiper, to respond to the grace and truth of Jesus as you love the people around you, as you love like Jesus loved you. See, when we talk about how we are accomplishing this in our midst, see, what we know is Jesus invites us to be disciples, to follow him and as disciples, to be disciples who make more disciples. And so what we are doing, we are invited to belong to the family of God. And we are invited to believe in the promises that only Jesus gives to us. And we are invited to become more and more like Christ. As, and then to invite other people into that. I once heard a leader describe strategy this way. See, uh, see a cone is, is a pretty simple invention. It doesn't take much to make. But with this simple piece of rubber, you can control two tons of a vehicle. Or with a simple cone put in a place, it actually, will, it actually will help shape where that car does or does not go. A simple cone put in a parking spot will prevent a two-ton vehicle from going into that spot. Which is, it's a, and it's a simple piece of rubber. The, the, the cone is far outweighed and outmatched. The, the cone is far outmatched by the car that cone and in, in strategically placed shapes where that car does or doesn't go and then if you t- take mul- multiple cones and you you align them together what you then can have is not simply just controlling one car but entire crowds of vehicles then can be pointed in a particular direction because now all the cones align in a particular way says here is where you we want you to go See, when we talk about strategy, what we are doing is is saying that we know the mission of God to go and make disciples. To extend the love and care of Jesus, and so now we're just going to put cones in place so we can help point you in that direction. To align things in such a way saying, "All right, we want to be a place where everybody is invited to belong, that everybody can be a part of the family. And as a part of the family, it's not simply to stay here and just to be family, but to be a family that carries you to Jesus. Because as you come face to face with Jesus, Jesus will look you in the eyes and say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus will speak his grace. He will speak the truth of you of the scriptures. And then what he will call you to is to love. That he will call you to love and serve the people around you. And so as a church, what we are doing is, is we, we can't control whether or not you you really feel like you belong. But we can give you opportunities. We can give you opportunities to, to feel like you belong here on a Sunday morning, to feel welcome, to feel loved, to feel accepted and known. We can give you opportunities for, for your children on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday, opportunities for your teenagers and men and women of all ages and stages of life to feel like they belong. In the large group, in a small group, and in individual relationships. We can't control whether or not you believe the message. We can't control how the Spirit of God will choose to work as we share the promises of Jesus. But what we can do is we can be aligned with grace, truth, and love in all areas of our ministry, pointing people to the same message and the same promises. And we can't control whether or not you leverage your life for the sake of somebody else. We can't control. How, how God will lead you to become more and more like Jesus. But what we can do is have opportunities for as you, so that as you discover your gifts and as the Spirit of God leads you, that you can have opportunities to love your neighbor, to serve in this church, in this community, in this world, as you become a worshiper of Jesus in all of your life. I want to spend a few moments closing us with prayer and then we'll prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who invites us into a relationship with you. That you invite us to to belong to your family. That you've given your life for us, that by your death, by your resurrection, that there is nothing that separates us from you. And that as you invite us into relationship with you, you speak your promises to us that we know that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are forgiven. And as you speak those to us, you also call us to then love the people around us. And so in these moments, as we we prepare our hearts to celebrate your gifts of your body and your blood, I, I ask that you hear us as we confess all the ways that we have failed to love. The ways that we have failed to love you with all our heart and soul and mind. The ways we have failed to love our own families, our own friends, our neighbors, our co workers. The ways we have failed to be worshipers in all of our life and the way that we love and serve people around you. Hear us now as we confess our sins to you. The promise of Jesus is that when you fail to love, He does not. And while you were still powerless, while you were still paralyzed and on the mat, Jesus spoke to you his promise. Your sins are forgiven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.